Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. We're on a timeline for two things for sure, and that is the debt limit and also budget. We've probably been seduced by the notion that we can get off fossil fuels much quicker than can happen. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. Biden was as knowledgeable about the issues around affordable housing as anybody out there ever been around. Excess government spending always causes inflation. Inflation hurts the poorest families in this country. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Democratic leaders still say they are still on track to vote as soon as tomorrow. I know you've heard me say this before, but it is my job to report and we'll have the latest from Speaker Pelosi, from Chuck Schumer and their plans for infrastructure and reconciliation. Still a bit muddy at the moment. But we do have a new score from the Joint Committee on Taxation, and we'll talk about it ahead with Congressman Kevin Brady of Texas, ranking member on the House Ways and Means Committee. Later, we get to explore the progressive mindset following the elections and heading for apparently votes on Capitol Hill with Adam Green, co-founder of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. Our panel today, Democratic strategist Roger Fisk of New Day Strategy in studio with me here for the hour, along with Republican analyst Doug High, former Deputy Chief of Staff, for Republican House Leader Eric Cantor. We are hearing new talk of urgency from both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue today to pass the Biden economic agenda. White House Deputy Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre just briefed reporters a short time ago. The president is, has been very clear. He wants to get this moving. There's an urgency along with the members uh, of both chambers have, have been very clear on getting this done, making sure that we're giving relief to the uh, middle class, that economic release that they so deserve. Speaker Nancy Pelosi was asked repeatedly a short time earlier by reporters on the Hill about the timetable for votes. When is this going to happen? You get the sense she's been asked this a couple times as she has a little fun with reporters. You expect to vote tonight. And is it possible that you might just vote on the infrastructure bill, considering everybody seems to be bought in and saying it's ready for a vote? No. OK, so let's <laughs> do you anticipate a vote on Build Back Better today? And what are the big hurdles you have to overcome? I'll let you know as soon as I wish to. But we're, we're, <laughs> okay, you're just worried about your own schedule. I know, I know that. <laughs> but the fact is, is that our members are engaged in very thoughtful deliberation with each other. You don't hear this stuff on other programs, right? We bring you into the briefings for the real stuff, the real moments. People actually do laugh from time to time here in the bubble. 
And all this after the Joint Committee on Taxation. You got this, you file this one away. The JCT, you'll sound smart at the cocktail party later, released its score for reconciliation showing taxes in this spending plan would raise $1.5 trillion over 10 years. Remembering we were at 1.75, right? House Ways and Means Chair Richard Neal says the bill's paid for when you include IRS enforcement and drug pricing provisions. And we begin today with someone at the center of the tax debate. That would be Texas Congressman Kevin Brady, ranking member on the aforementioned House Ways and Means Committee. Congressman, it's always great to have you. Welcome back. Do you agree with this JCT analysis on taxes in this plan? Is it actually paid for, like the chairman says? Yeah, I don't think it is. I think it's full of budget gimmicks that uh, don't cover the cost of it all. I, I do think unleashing 80,000 new IRS agents is, is not going to create $400 billion in new revenue uh, net. Uh, they're using budget gimmicks on the drug pricing issue as well. I We count them about a half a trillion uh, short, or at least in question, on the pay-fors. But where they are accurate is there is $1.2 trillion in crippling tax hikes on American businesses, including our small businesses as well. I think that's going to have, a, I think, a crucial impact uh, on our economy going forward. Are they being disingenuous then, or, or is the chairman using different math than you are? One, Chairman Neal, uh, I'll just tell you, I've worked with him a long time. His word is good. He's got a ton of character integrity. Uh, the scores that they're using are what they've been given by the Joint Committee on Taxation. What they don't have is from the Congressional Budget Office mm-hmm. on things like the IRS figures and the drug pricing, which traditionally have been much smaller than what the White House uh, has said it is. So uh, I think it could come in uh, significantly under uh, at this point. You know, I think Chairman Neal is, is using the data that he's been given so far. I guess I should ask you, uh, Congressman, is is the tax provision, the provisions plural, as you understand in this plan, are they are they done? Are they fixed? Or are we going to go back to talking yeah. about billionaire taxes and unrealized gains? Yeah, great question. So it seems to be changing. I noticed just the 2,000-page bill uh, that was dumped on us yesterday afternoon, they added a bunch of what I might call tax pork. So they added new tax breaks for trial lawyers, for labor union dues, subsidies for hiring local media journalists, new tax break for recording artists. And then they're still right now, I think, debating House and Senate about how big of a tax break do they give the wealthy by repealing the SALT cap that's in current law today. So it seems to be continuing to change. I I, I don't doubt it'll change some more. So what's going on with SALT, by the way? It's in, it's out, now it's back in apparently, and we're looking at at least what I'm hearing is a five-year suspension. Can you add to that? Yeah, so probably not because I think there's about four different proposals in place. Some of them are just budget gimmicks. So you repeal it for two or five years and then you extend it for two or five years. Either way, that is, you know, at five years, uh, extensions about half a trillion dollars in tax breaks, most of which go to, to homes making more than a million dollars. They're also looking at increasing it from 10000 to a figure like $70,000 for several years and then putting it back in place in later years or permanently. All that to say, it seems to be a moving target. Uh, they seem to be you know, moving the, the Rubik's Cube 
a uh, hundred different ways to figure out a path forward. I, I don't think they should be changing it at all. The $10,000 cap is double the national average for the SALT deduction and only goes to 10% of Americans. If you if you itemize, you get zero from lifting the SALT cap. And that's what, what most Americans are. 90% don't itemize. Congressman Kevin Brady makes news right out of the gate here on the JCT analysis. Are you also making news in that you know how to solve the Rubik's Cube? <laughs> well, mine would be don't hammer us with higher taxes uh, and, and don't make it uh, the labor shortage worse, which I think they do in this bill, especially I think we're in a crucial time. Tomorrow's the October jobs report. Yeah. The president's coming in into this uh, with a lot of lack of confidence in his competency and leadership, dreadful jobs growth the last two months, economy essentially flatlined third quarter. He's a million jobs short of his promises from the last stimulus. So he needs a big number, and uh, we're following it pretty closely. Well, we hope there's a big number because that's good for all of us, I suppose. But Congressman, country. absolutely. Uh, do you have a sense of where we are, Congressman? i like to talk to you. I know this is a Democratic exercise in, in reconciliation, but we like to talk to you because – you're a straight shooter, and you normally tell us what's on your mind. Are you hearing about a timetable? Are you going to be called to vote up or down tomorrow? Yes. Yeah, so the latest, sort of the latest conventional wisdom around here is the potential for a vote tonight on the uh, tax and spending bill, and then a a infrastructure vote tomorrow. I think that's what Democrats are hoping for. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll know if there's an announcement of a rules committee meeting. They have to set the rules for debate on those two bills. Uh, my guess is the signal, the white smoke signal would be if rules committees called back to set the timing, then we'll know <laughs> they, they they believe they have the vote. Yes, we're watching the same chimney together here. Yes, we uh, are. We heard from OPEC today rejecting pleas from the White House to boost production, essentially handed the matter right back to the U.S., giving us a choice of tapping the, the strategic reserve or maybe there's another answer. I, I tend to ask you whenever you're on with us, is there enough demand for more shale drilling? And I'll start getting angry tweets. But is that a conversation happening in the industry and in Texas? Well, it should be. It makes no sense for us to be begging foreign countries for more supply when we've got the capability to do it right here at home. But the Biden administration, as you know, just seems to hate the oil and gas industry and won't give a, an inch on this issue. And it's one of the reasons, you know, gas prices are so high, my home heating and Others are going to be higher uh, later this winter, and so I, I think it's they've they've got a blind spot here, and Americans are paying for it in these higher gas prices. But you would need his okay to start more or resume shale drilling. Is that what yeah, you mean? I, I don't think the energy industry facing a relentless attack from the White House and Congress, including about a hundred billion dollars of tax increases in this uh, in this spending bill. You know, I think it'd be irresponsible for them to move forward without a signal from the White House that uh, they're not going to take action to shut them down. Texas Congressman Kevin Brady, sounds like you are standing by for some votes in the next 24 to 48 hours. Well, we are working to stop the bill, so I'm hopeful you never see that white smoke. Well, I know what your vote will be. Congressman Kevin Brady of Texas, ranking member, House Ways and Means Committee. Thank you, as always, for coming back to talk to us, sir. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. 
At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Headline on the terminal, Pelosi aims to herd caucus ahead of vote. Easier said than done, as I read from Bloomberg government, House Democrats seeking to hammer out the remaining differences inside their caucus on President Biden's tax and social spending measure with a vote. As I read, it's right in front of me here, not a typo, a vote possible as early as tonight. It's like Kevin Brady just said. Will it happen tonight, tomorrow, this weekend? It should be a working weekend, according to the majority leader, Steny Hoyer. And so we assemble the panel to get into all this post-election. What could happen by the end of this week? We're joined by Democratic strategist Roger Fisk of New Day Strategy, longtime veteran of the Obama White House. We could go back to the Kerry campaign as well. Former Boston boy, so he must be honest. Republican analyst Doug High with us on the line as well, former deputy chief of staff, for Republican House Leader Eric Cantor, thanks to both of you for being here. And Roger, it's great to have you in studio. This is a, a good day for us as we try to understand exactly what's happening here on Capitol Hill. You heard Kevin Brady. You were sitting here as we were discussing this. Do you think a vote is even possible in the next 24 to 48 hours? Yes, is the short version. And thank you so much for having me. It's it's good to be anywhere, as, as they used <laughs> to say. Um, but I think the urgency that came through very clear on Tuesday, it's it's too late to pivot away from this. Uh, the, you know, it's it's essentially so large and there's been so much time invested into this. The, the idea that this would be set aside or something like that, um, just based on the uh, results of Tuesday, I think is – um, not realistic once this is so far down the aisle as it is. So I think, you know, nothing nothing beats bad news better than more news, right? There's hmm. just kind of a natural kind of pipeline to these things. So the mm-hmm. best thing that these folks can do is push forward and try to get this done. And then on the kind of implementation end, they just want to make sure that there's hard hats and shovels out there by no later than March or April, because I believe that the elections of the fall are largely determined by what people experience in the spring. Hmm. Doug, hi. Uh, you're no stranger to this process or whipping votes for that matter. You were chief of staff, deputy chief of staff for Eric Cantor. Do you feel that same urgency? Do you see the, the Democratic leadership moving this as quickly as we're talking about here? And I say that quickly. My gosh, it's been months. But with regard to this week. Yeah, look, certainly leadership has that sense of urgency Well, where the rank and file members are. I just don't think we know. And, and that urgency was in place with leadership before Tuesday, you know, a week before Tuesday, a month before Tuesday. And one of the things that surprised me on this just operationally were the number of times that we've been promised as recently as Monday um, that we would have a vote today, this week. And they've blown through deadline after deadline. Mm-hmm. And it's not clear to me why this week would then be different than any other week, because the pressure points are now gone. Well, I think the answer that Roger was saying to that question is elections, right? Is that is that not a motivator? 
Well, it's, sure, it's a motivator, but it would have been more of a, of a motivator uh, a week ago. You know, you had Terry McAuliffe on the stump saying, essentially, Democrats, I don't care what's in this thing. You just need to demonstrate that you can get any kind of work done. And then, you know, I think Democrats also have the challenge of they don't know what's in this bill. And, uh, you know, as Nancy Pelosi rather famously said in uh, 2010, 2009, I guess, um, we have to pass it to find out what's in it. That may be the case for Democrats right now. Um, but there, there's still that disconnect between leadership and uh, the rank and file members. Is that a fair assessment, Roger? A lot of lawmakers have said, I'm not voting on anything unless I can read it first. Yeah, I, I disagree with very, very little of that. It's um, when things are moving this quickly, you know, you could basically hit print mm. at your computer three hours ago. And, and then the document that you would have in your lap right now could be very, very different uh, by the time the sun goes down today. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I agree with his point um, fundamentally. Well, so let's say that there's a vote tomorrow. Uh, we'll say there's a vote tonight. Let's let's be hopeful here. Uh, do both end up moving at once, Roger? As we have heard repeatedly, progressives need to see uh, some assurances on reconciliation before they get to infrastructure. Nancy Pelosi knows that she's been hearing this all along. There must be a mechanism for this. When you dissect the language that Chairwoman um, Jayapal has used, I think starting about a month ago, she was starting to kind of telegraph a little bit of willingness to accept some kind of theoretical guarantee, which would be to say that as long as there's a, a, an agreement in place that will bring this up you know, within a you know a couple of weeks or a month or something, I think I saw just a little bit of distance between the two major pieces of legislation open mm. up. Yeah. And, and, and I took that to be her kind of telegraphing a willingness to do this vote. The um, we trust the president line is what you're talking about. We trust yeah, President and Biden. Then, and then how much, how much wiggle room is there where mm-hmm. that trust can still be regarded as something real and, and you know, um, as a as a as an honest uh, obligation, but then still giving room for the legislative machinations to actually happen. Yeah. Because I just I don't see these things happening in the same twenty four hour period, and probably not in the same week, and maybe not even in the same month. Remarkable, Doug. Does every Republican vote no on bipartisan infrastructure because there is this? this sort of connection, this implied connection, or is there a good reason for House Republicans to vote to improve roads and bridges? Well, I think you'll certainly see a few Republicans vote for whatever package ends up getting put in place, as we've seen, you know, over the past few weeks and and really last year and a half. uh, Some Republicans have really uh, been incentivized to challenge leadership. It's a small group, uh, but that exists. After that, I think the reality is politically, um, especially given the, the shape and, and makeup of congressional districts, mm-hmm. when you're in the when you're in the minority, your job in part, especially to your to your constituency, which is overwhelmingly of your party, is to not help the other side do anything. So we're watching for the white smoke uh, in the words of Kevin Brady, the congressman from Texas, ranking member on House Ways and Means, uh, with us at the top of the hour here says, watch the Rules Committee. You want to know when they vote? That comes first. And any of us who remember the last conclave know exactly what he's talking about. They say there could be a vote tonight, maybe tomorrow, and it could be a working weekend. And we're joined to talk about all of this, and namely the role that progressives are playing, the sort of positions that they have been taking, and it seems to be one of trust at the moment, based on what we're hearing from Representative Jayapal. Joined by Adam Green now. He's co-founder of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. Adam, thank you for being with us. Are progressives on board to move forward? Absolutely. And progressives have been on board to move forward for a while. And my understanding is that when this happens, it will be two bills happening 
pretty much at the same time, the larger Build Back Better plan, which is the crux of the Biden economic agenda, as well as the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Progressives have said all along, let's vote on them together. Mm-hmm. And the net effect of the last couple of weeks is that that larger bill has really taken shape, gotten even more consensus around it. And I think uh, most people are ready to do this. Listen to what uh, Speaker Pelosi said earlier when she was asked about this very thing. Are you voting on these two bills? I think many of you know I was really very unhappy about not passing the BIF last week. I I really was very unhappy because we had an October 31st deadline, and I thought that that was eloquent, but not enough, I guess. So now we're going to pass both bills, but in order to do so, we have to have votes for both bills, and that's where we are. So does that suggest, Adam, that the stare down between progressives and moderates now, I guess, are are the issue? They say that they want to see a score. They want to read the bill first. This sort of stare off continues on Capitol Hill. Yeah, you know, I think some of the reporting on this kind of muddies some of the waters. You know, even calling them moderates is not accurate. Most frontline House Democrats, people who won swing districts by two points, three points, Mm -hmm. and most even moderate conservative Democrats, are ready to vote and pass this thing. There are a few, uh, I would call them, um, you know, either narcissistic or corporate aligned or <laughs> okay. conservative Democrats who are not generally from swing districts. One guy won his district by 40 points, not with 40 points, by 40 points. Another person by 12 points. And these people are just like obstructing the bill, asking for more and more details as a delay tactic. And you know, that is in contrast to the majority of the caucus. I mean, even Christian Cinema is on board at this point. And that's why most people are saying, let's just get this done, especially after the Virginia and New Jersey election results. One of the major messages I think most Democrats have taken from that is as we ask voters for their trust, in order to keep that trust, we have to deliver. And if we don't deliver, enthusiasm goes down because why would I, you know, why would a mom working two jobs or three jobs, you know, worried about her kids at night, you know, barely any any free time to spare, go and vote if it's not going to make a difference in their in that person's life, right? What this will do is give that person child care, give that person lower-cost prescription drugs and health care, right? If that person has an elderly parent, it will address long-term or, or home care. There's so many things in this that will just make the hassle of everybody in people's lives better, generally paid for by millionaires and giant corporations who have been using loopholes to avoid paying taxes. It's a super popular bill. We just got to get it done. And I think at this huh. point, there's just a few recalcitrant Democrats who are not progressive caucus members who are potentially standing in the way. But I'm actually optimistic that they will get in line, especially given the election results this week. Adam Green, you, I recall a conversation you're 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 causing me to recall a conversation I had with Ayanna Presley, the progressive mm-hmm. uh, so-called member of the squad, progressive congresswoman mm-hmm. uh, from uh, Massachusetts. And she was making the point a couple of weeks ago that these are not options for real progressives. Child care, she said, is a must-have, not a want-have. Climate change provisions, must-have, not want-have. Paid leave, the same deal. Prescription drug prices. Not all of these items, though, are, are apparently going to make it in to the, the final bill. When you look at the initial wish list the, where we started here, this number has been whittled down quite a bit and not everything will make it in. Bring us inside the minds of the progressive lawmaker. Is there a thought that, okay, we're getting as much as we can at least to go ahead with this, or we're going to come back again next year maybe with reconciliation and get the rest? Yeah, I I will say that, you know, look, progressives are extremely pragmatic. I think everybody knows that that they're not going to get everything they want. 
Um, probably the most important must-have is climate because, like, the world is at stake literally <laughs> if we don't act now, and um, we can't can't play games with that. So, while many programs have been whittled back to one to four years of funding, climate gets a full ten years, which is the maximum allowed in this law. Um, you You're know, not getting that clean is, grid provision though. That was the centerpiece of the of the climate, though. Is is there an effort or a thought that there will be an effort later to bring that back, or are we walking oh, away absolutely. from it? No, absolutely. I mean, look, I mean, ultimately, trillions and trillions of dollars of investment will be needed just for climate. This would be about $555 billion. But the, the good news is that we have reconfigured, you know, the money didn't go down. We're, you know, there's lots of stuff that we can do. This, will, this was destined to be a down payment on the larger set of stuff that will need to come later. And uh, part of what Joe Biden did negotiate with Joe Manchin is, all right, if you object to certain provisions, give me the same money. We'll find other stuff to fund. But mm-hmm. all of it is chipping away at our obligations under you know, to, to address climate change. But to your point, you know, a week ago, there were actually three major things missing from this bill that are actually put back in. One was negotiating, allowing Medicare to negotiate lower price prescriptions with yep. the big pharma companies. Pay leave is that, back in. You know, yep. Pay leave is back in. Um, and there's one more that I'm like those, right now. And they, those make yes. it palatable, though, for progressives to vote for this. It, does it have to come before infrastructure, or is that rope-a-dope over with? It, well, it doesn't matter, because it will become before infrastructure. What we're hearing is that what Pelosi will likely do is schedule uh, this larger Build Back Better bill one day, yeah. probably do infrastructure the next day, or it will probably be in that sequence, which addresses all the trust issues. No need to have an artificial fight there. Adam Green, co-founder of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. Appreciate your asking my questions. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. So the progressives are on board. Most of the moderates are. The Speaker Pelosi says she's still hunting for votes. New York Times with the headline, House Democrats hunt for votes to pass Biden's domestic agenda. So we're not there yet, at least midday today. We were not. I played for you the comments from Speaker Pelosi earlier. Says doesn't have the votes. That doesn't mean it won't be the case tonight. And we're joined by the panel as we reassemble our panel for today. And our experts are Democratic strategist Roger Fisk of New Day Strategy. And we're joined on the line by Republican analyst Doug High, former deputy chief of staff for Republican House leader Eric Cantor. What's your thought after hearing that conversation, Roger? And know that they're whipping votes up there right now. We're waiting for rules to come together. This whole thing is going to be one full smash. You know, after waiting months and months, it's going to be breakneck. All of a sudden, we're voting on everything at once. Do you feel that way? I don't know about everything at once, but it definitely seems like something's coming. Imagine being Speaker Pelosi right now and watching, for example, if American Airlines drops a couple more flights or something. I mean, the, she, her, the margin is so thin. Um, but that's an encouraging message coming from your previous guest uh, representing kind of the uh, Progressive Caucus yeah. and from Chairwoman Jayapal, like I, like I mentioned. So I, I think people are getting to a point where they realize this needs to be punctuated, this needs to be implemented, and shovels need to be in the ground next spring if they have any hope of, of proving that they're following through on what they, they promised the American people and having that reflect itself in the results of next fall. Doug, hi. I bet you remember the good old days of shovel-ready jobs uh, back when Roger was working for President Obama. But what what's going on right now behind the scenes? You actually know this. You lived it. What What is happening as they whip votes? Are people being called yeah. into the Speaker's office? Is this being done on the phone? What kind of arm twisting is happening? All, all of the above and include every member of leadership. They're meeting with Steny Hoyer. They're meeting with Jim Clyburn. They're meeting with their 
the leader of their state delegations. And the, the whole goal is trying to get to 218 votes. And it's one of the things that when I worked in House leadership, sometimes we were successful at, sometimes we weren't. And what Nancy Pelosi will not do is bring up a vote that's going to fail. So if they announce that there is an actual vote, not a goal for a vote, that means they've got the votes to pass this. But there's still a lot of moving pieces. And, you know, listening to, frankly, the traffic update uh, when we were at commercial, <laughs> I was reminded that every single person who's taking the Holland Tunnel, everybody who's listening right now on the C Street going to Atlantic uh, Highlands in New Jersey, the salt tax issue is a big deal for them. And yes, that's not right. just a divide necessarily between moderates and progressives. That's a geographic divide as well. New Jersey, having lived in New Jersey and North Carolina, property taxes, sales taxes, income taxes are very different in those states. You know, we heard Kevin Brady talking about that, uh, and he's not too pleased about it. We had a, a member of Congress from southwestern Virginia with us this time last night. He said, how come my people need to pay for your, your bad tax policy up in New York and New Jersey? Yeah, and all those states get to pump their own gas, let's not forget. <laughs> Spoken like a New Jerseyan. What do you make of that, uh, Roger, the salt cap? This is something that's been in and out so many times. We, As we just discussed with Kevin Brady, it appears to be back in a five-year suspension. This is what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez at one point was calling a gift to millionaires. Yeah, you could categorize it that way. It's very interesting when you get into looking at the federal pie and what states um, contribute what. For example, 13 of the 15 states most relying on the federal government are red states, and some of the governors thereof have made no small national name for themselves off boasting of their fiscal austerity and things like that. When you, uh, uh, South Carolina, Louisiana, Mississippi is getting $1.20, $1.30 back for every dollar they put in, whereas a Connecticut, a Massachusetts, a California is getting 70, 85 cents back. So there is a donor. Uh, dynamic between some states. So when people get into a conversation about exactly what state is paying what in terms of taxes, they might be very surprised about who comes out on the losing end of that. What do you make of that, Doug? Uh, I think it was Hakeem Jeffries who was, who was drawing the line, I think as Roger just was, between maker states and taker states. Yeah, look, it, it's, a real, it's a real issue. You know, as a conservative, what, and, and I've talked to some Democratic members about this, you know, it, one of the things that I know frustrates conservatives is that, that the answer is never that these states can reduce their own high taxes. And, uh, you know, having been in New Jersey just a few weeks ago and hearing complaints about every level of taxation that they have, that never seems to be on the table. It's up to Washington to provide a deduction. I understand if you represent New Jersey, if you're Josh Gottheimer and you've been working relentlessly on this issue where maybe five years isn't good enough for you, you need 10 years um, for assault deduction. This is, again, where these things aren't just ideological, they're geographic. Producer Matt Shirley just put a list in front of me here from Money Geek. They actually ranks states by federal dependency. Those most dependent states, number one, New Mexico, I was surprised to see, followed by West Virginia, Mississippi, Alaska, Montana. There's your top five, followed by Kentucky, where, of course, the Republican leader in the Senate is from. Uh, while we have you here, I want to ask you about something else big that's happening today. We could get a vote tonight on infrastructure reconciliation. If we do, you're going to hear about it on Bloomberg. But there's another big headline. On another day, we'd probably be talking about this a lot more, and that's President Biden's vaccine rule for employers. This is something that's been considered rather controversial. This impacts companies with 100 employees or more, and I see the Bloomberg headline. Biden's vaccine rule is here, and half of employers are not ready. 
Is this good politics, Roger? I think I know how you're going to answer this. This is going to go through the Labor Department, through OSHA, apparently a rule that will require companies with 100 employees or more. But they're, they're, this could lead to an enormous number of lawsuits as government tries to tell private business what to do. Well, what to do should they wish to do business with the federal government, right? Like, what I one of my takeaways from Tuesday, and I'll loop this back to your question, I promise, is yeah. the cartoonish ways that some of these issues are um, presented on the Republican side. For example, the critical race theory, Attorney General Garland calling parents domestic terrorists, all these things that essentially get incredibly cartoonized and exaggerated and kind of metastasized into these existential kind of um, threats. So my point in that is to say Biden is going to get uh, essentially caricatured as a big government, you know, kind of authoritarian when it comes to the vaccine, no matter what he does. Hmm. So he might as well at least post some numbers so that he can go with data and present his, you know, his record and his justifications thereof to the American people. Because fast forward to next fall and they'll be saying the same kind of stuff about him anyway. So he might as well have the numbers to um, to show for it. Well, it's an interesting approach. And this is different than what we're seeing in New York, right, where municipal employees were walking off the job because there was not an, an alternative for testing. This actually would come with an alternative for regular testing or, or covering your face, masking up at work. Doug, is, is this a problem for you as the White House gets involved in private business? No, again, I think it's, it's really an issue of who's doing um, – business with the federal government. And politically for Joe Biden, he knows that ultimately when you look at everything that happened on Tuesday, it all ties into COVID one way or another. The whole issue of schools in Virginia began with schools being closed and more schools closed in Virginia than anywhere else. Obviously, the economy, inflation, the supply chain, all these things that we look at, even border security to some extent, COVID affects all of this. The best thing that Joe Biden can do for the country, much less for his own re-election is to get us past where we are right now and worrying about other variants and, you know, all the things that have gone on with this to get America really back on track. We see issue and issue after issue where Democrats, not just Biden, are underwater in polling. But more than anything, it's really the right track, wrong track. And that all goes back to COVID. You want to add to that, Roger? No, I I actually completely agree with it. I'm old fashioned. I think good policy makes good politics. He said he would follow through and and flatten this uh, flatten these numbers. And that's that would be perfectly politically valuable and relevant for him to do exactly what he told the American people he would do. Wow. We're all agreeing on a lot of stuff here. We got a jobs report tomorrow. Uh, Kevin Brady, who was on with us at the beginning of the hour, Doug, was referring to the president being a million jobs short of of, uh, of his goals. That, too, is tied to COVID as we wait for people to come back to work. And we're not always sure why. Are they afraid of the workplace? Are they waiting for, for child care? Maybe they're dealing with, uh, with, with an older person in their family who can't get out of the house. How much is that going to be uh, blamed, I guess, on President Biden if, the, if these numbers continue to lag projections by economists? Yeah, it, it's a real part of it. And also you have a lot of people who just have decided, I don't really need to go back and do that anymore. It turns out I didn't really enjoy it. You know, I, I would I would concede that not every voter thinks about what's happening in downtown Washington as being critical for their lives. Yeah. But if you go to if you still go to downtown Washington right now, it's a ghost town. That's for and sure. People aren't going back to their offices, which means they're not taking the subway, they're not taking the bus, they're not getting sandwiches for lunch mm-hmm. or cocktails and you know, whatever at dinner. 
the town is still a ghost town, and that's still happening in a lot of cities throughout the country. And that's ultimately where those jobs numbers, you know, that's a big part of where those jobs numbers are and why they've been lacking. I was struck uh, coming back to D.C., Roger, to see how quiet it is here compared to New York, Boston, wherever else, uh, where people are starting to come back, where there are traffic jams. How important is that number tomorrow for President Biden? I think it'll come in probably very close to where it's been. When I was listening to Representative Brady's comments earlier, I was thinking back, you know, 2019 is presented as kind of the the halcyon year of the of the Trump presidency. And I remember clearly February of 2019, Mm. the jobs report was 40,000 jobs. Mm. May of 2019 was 70,000 jobs. Really weak, anemic numbers. Biden's chugging along at 195, 200. That's pretty solid given um, what we've been through in the last 18 months. Great conversation with Roger Fisk and Doug High. God, there's a lot of smart people around here. I thank you both, and great to have you in studio with us, Roger. Let's do this again soon. For sure. Thanks to the congressman. We'll meet you back here tomorrow, same time. This is Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.